I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 75 of The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Did you have a nice week off? I don't know if I can call it a week off. It was a week off work, but it was a week on babying. Mm. But it was great. It was so nice to have that week with her. I am still ill though after five weeks, which is quite boring and my sleeping is still terrible. But I'm now taking vitamins, which sounds a bit like you recommending the Sainsbury's app. Yeah, like do you I've know discovered what? vitamin C. It's so funny. I'm amazed that I didn't get more abuse for yeah, me too. the Sainsbury's app. I didn't. I didn't get one arsey Hilo more abuse listener. Than me. <laughs> the, the only person who did pick it up was my friend India, who I saw on Friday, and she was like, by the way, you know when you were doing the recommendations on the Hilo this week? And I was like, yeah. She was like, was it sponsored? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? She said it, she said it was sponsored, wasn't it? Right, by you all can't those, actually by all be those recommending apps. those apps. And I was like, no, of course it wasn't sponsored. It was that we'd have to say it was just me recommending it. And she was like, that was weird. Did you just not read anything last week? I was like, well, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Apparently, it's not been very helpful to anyone. So I'm very sorry. I won't ever do it again. But she was also like, you're the biggest luddite, and you don't know how to use your phone or apps. That's why it's so, so monumental. Yeah, she's like, I'm not going to listen to what you have to say about apps. So did you say, well, thank you, Andy, for your contribution. You've really bolstered my sense of self today. She also listened to the Lindsay Hilsom episode three times last week because she liked it so much. I think that's a bit much. Well, this is also the girl who's gone to go see A Star Is Born at the cinema three times. India, what's going on with you? Is three the magic number? She's very obsessive. Anyway, what <laughs> vitamins are you recommending, Pandora? I'm not. I'm definitely not getting down that. Oh, God. And also, God love anyone who was who kind enough to do so, but please don't email me telling me what supplements I can take or all sorts. I'm I'm handling it. Yeah. Very kind, all the suggestions of CBD oil. When She's I begin my it. cannabis lifestyle, I will absolutely take to the CBD oil. But yeah, I'm across it. I'm across it. So, you know... When are you going to start the cannabis lifestyle, do you think? Because I'm excited about that. <laughs> I live right next to Camden Market. I'm very much here for you, you when you that happens. Can you imagine? It would absolutely throw everyone. It's so against my personality type. How was your week? It was. It Dolly was sent good. me a message going, I have to let you know, I've been drunk for most of this week and it's great. How are you feeling this week? It wasn't great, actually. I have to say it wasn't great. <laughs> it's awful. I can't... Do you know what it is? I've realised... No, I've realised that I'm really struggling now as a 30-year-old to work out how to spend free time, like how to relax. And I think because what I used to default to in my 20s was just getting so drunk... I sometimes do that and it just makes me... I'm like in recovery now for a week. It does take a week though. It, it takes does. a week. If you drink for more than three days over a week, then you need a holiday. Preaching to the long converted. And how was Venice? Did it smell? These are the rumours I always hear. Didn't smell. Have you ever been? No, dying to go actually. I want to it's, go for my birthday. Should I go for my Definitely birthday? Definitely go for your birthday. When's your birthday again, January? March. <laughs> 
such a dick. <laughs> I'm such a bad friend. I'm s- Please, can we take that out? Because I will no, not hear no, the end of it. We're not taking it out. It's staying in, and you'll have all heard how Dolly tried to get it taken out. I'm going to have so many high-low listeners well, tell me that I'm a bad friend. What do you say? I'm sorry, it's because I'm not on Facebook anymore. I can't, I don't... No, I know, it's seriously hard. Dolly, I don't still, I still don't know um, Ollie's birthday. I know it's the 4th or the 5th of May. That's <laughs> <laughs> so angry. Anyway, March. Yes, I think that would be fine. Well, apparently now in Venice, there's no such thing as out of season. Because it's just, it's so... And that's the thing I would say. It's the most breathtakingly... You stayed in a sumptuous looking hotel. Oh, yeah, it was could, gorgeous. Could you just step out onto a gondola? Yeah, but the amazing thing about um, Venice is, like, every corner of it looks like Venice. The whole... It's so aesthetically beautiful, jaw-droppingly so, but it's also jaw-droppingly touristy. It's the most touristy place I've ever been Have in you my been to Rome? That's the most touristy place I've ever been. I think it's... I haven't been to Rome, but I think it's, like... I, I mean, I didn't hear Italian the entire time I was there. Is it the most jaw-dropping, expensive place you've ever been? Yeah, really expensive. But it's worth it because it's so yeah. grand you just live and the it's Venice, so the Venetian lifestyle for a few days. Yeah. It's, oh, the other thing I would say if anyone's going to Venice is you have to book all your dinners, like, a week before. Did you do that? No. So I had all these fabulous recommendations and I just, none of them I could get into. I still had, I ate well, but for me, part of it is like yeah. discovering all the great restaurants and I just, we couldn't get in anywhere. And how was your first ever holiday with your mum? Oh, she was great. She was so great. So you recommend, you recommend the mum and daughter mini break? Yeah. Have you ever done it before? No. I'm picturing in my head. It would be quite funny. I should. I should. I think we want quite different things from the mini break. Really? See, that's the thing with any holidaying partner. Like, I've worked out with my friends who I'm on the same wavelength yeah. with. Because you said you and Ollie are so compatible with what you want from a holiday. I think we've met a lot in the middle. But um, I definitely think... you don't. If you're someone that likes getting up at 8 or 9 in the morning, going on a mini-break with someone that wants to wake up at 12 would mm. be really boring. Mm. It's, it's just quite basic, those requirements. Yeah, that's. It? I think that's the main thing, is is it's also like how much of it is... So me and my mum are on the same wavelength that, like, a big part of discovering a place is just, like, noodling around. So for my mum and I, kind of wandering around is as important as, like... Poodling. Poodling. Big... Poog- my mum used that word all the time. I love poodling. poodling. My favourite is waddling, just because it's just so... Tell you what, after all that pistachio gelato, I was bloody waddling. You were waddling. <laughs> but you didn't have a total week off. Um, you did... Two stunning performances of everything I know about oh, live, thanks, Angel. which I one of which I not both not that much of a fan. One of which I came to see. Yes, I noticed you didn't come to the matinee as well, and I, I would be lying to say it didn't hurt a little that I didn't give up five hours of my Sunday. <laughs> but it was really fascinating because I said to Dolly, "That is Zadie having a little bit of a chat next door." She's quite upset that she didn't come to everything I know about love. But I said to Dolly, it was really weird, but in like a really good way watching you on stage not sitting next to you because I've never actually seen you without being um, next to you in a kind of live audience sense normally beforehand me having a complete meltdown before being like I'm so nervous I'd say it was quite nice being in 
a stage format but like not sweating myself yes, so it was entirely yeah. sweaty bit but I was still on the edge of my seat because I like really I was really invested in like you not making a gaffe so it yeah. was as if I was up there that's kind of like that's sweet because that's kind of like how you feel I imagine like, as a mum yeah when you yeah, yeah, when I you felt see like Zadie doing the nativity and you'll just be like oh please don't mess it up <laughs> yeah watching you felt like watching a nativity play. oh that's so nice I loved having you there it was really because you no I was very I was very proud of you for yeah. anyone else that's booked Thanks, their tickets you're, you're in for a treat Thanks darling Did you have any other revelations from your week off? I did Dolly I discovered whole milk in coffee I would argue that that is akin to me discovering the same Teresa app but I'll let, I'll let it go It's delicious I can see I can see why people get quite kind of obsessed with having the blue milk it's a different coffee you experience know what, as well if someone's worried about calories with semi-skimmed and whole milk it's really not that much difference no there's a lot of other things that are probably more and did you notice that if you're making coffee at home with whole milk it foams up properly in a way that semi-skimmed doesn't as well no i didn't notice that actually have a little experiment at home. <laughs> have a little so experiment. are you now going to have whole milk in all your coffees i did want to see if i start having whole milk and everything if i get larger it was a bit like in my last few weeks of um pregnancy where i started putting cream and everything because i was just mm. like oh i remember that phase fuck this so everything that literally everything that ollie ate he'd be like this is delicious what have you put in and a bit of cream <laughs> <laughs> my friend alex when she went over to she lives in new york and when she first went there at coffee shops when they offer you all the different milks they offer half and half and she thought half Big and thing half in America, isn't it? was semi-skimmed milk. Half and half is single cream. So she was like, for the first month she was in New York, she was like, God, coffee is so good. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's single cream. That's amazing. And, uh, coffee was single cream. Can you tell me yum, what the difference yum. between single cream and double cream is? Do you know what? I cannot, but I'm sure we have some dairy farmers out there. Well, we've got one in New Zealand, haven't we? Let us know. Let us know. Um... Part of my whole milk and coffee thing is because I didn't have a total week off last week. One of the things that I did is hosted a um, panel talk on self-care. Now, oh, interesting. Previous listeners or regular listeners of the Hilo might know I am very dismissive of the term self-care. Mm. In fact, probably before this year, I was quite dismissive of anything that was really to do with looking after yourself. As of the past few weeks, I am now really interested. So hosting this panel could not have come at a better time. And I interviewed all these different people that have written like various self-care manuals. And I found it fascinating. And one of the books I'm now reading is by um, Katia Narain Phillips and her sister Nadia Narain. Katia is a wellness expert and a cook who's had several different cafes including the nectar cafe which is which is like a very cult delicious cafe mm. and nadia is a like very well-known yoga teacher and they had they've written a few books and one of them was self-care rituals for the everyday and i never read self-help books mm. mm-hmm. and i was lying in the bath last night and i was like these books are great yeah again this is like the sainsbury's app isn't it but it, it said you know like all that stuff that i know but never do so if you just have five minutes for yourself, um, why not give yourself like a hand massage? Mm. So I got out of the bath last night and I gave myself a face massage for five minutes oh. and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And then I've had some whole milk in my coffee and I really enjoyed yeah. it. It's about putting it into your everyday routine. I think I'm really working on myself at the moment and I I'm finding it really fascinating. I think that's great, particularly well, for everyone, but 
particularly for new mums, I think, because so much of your disorientation and yeah, and, but, and also just so much of of survival is that you have to just be thinking about the well-being of this thing, and maybe the well-being of you kind of can get lost in all that. I think one of the hardest things to do if you are quite a kind of neurotic, thinky person is to just focus on one thing. Mm. So the thing that I'm trying to do more than anything at the moment is to focus on one thing. So if other thoughts come into my I, head, I, yeah, like, but what are you doing tomorrow? And when's, when have you organised, you know, your next dinner party? And have you done all these things? Mm. And I think, no, go away, go yeah, away. Yeah. I'm busy thinking about an article I read. And I'm having a nice time thinking about an article I read. And that is really important, I think, isn't it? That is such an important part of self-care and also focusing on one activity and being yeah. really present in it. I think it's really good that you're discovering self-care. I'm actually having a bit of... You and I, I think, are going in opposite directions because my column in this Sunday is me talking about how I'm worried about the culture of self-care. I don't think it's without complications. Mm. And um, I think it does have the propensity to be navel-gazy, mm. unrealistic. Mm. I think, as you know, I'm quite obsessed with neoliberalism and how I think a lot of what we're really like digging at the moment is not collective like choice feminism you know like this makes me feel fucking great so i'm gonna do it cool great how's that like helping the yeah, rest of women yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's fine if you want to do that but don't call it feminism or it's fine if you want to do that but don't call it attach it to a doctrine yeah so i have a i have a problem with like doctrines and diktats and labels mm. and all that guff mm. i don't necessarily clearly have, have a problem with, with the activity yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, and with bettering bettering yourself anyway since we've been gone apple has added cream cheese to their emoji bagel after legions of complaints nick clegg has been made head of policy and communications at facebook mad trump critics including robert de niro were sent mail bombs and urban outfitters released an influencer halloween costume that consisted of a pair of leggings and a bra top. Now that's a high-low sandwich. It is. Low-brow bread, emojis, Halloween costumes, with a high-brow political filling of Clegg and mail bombs. <laughs> I'm not sure about the cream cheese on the bagel emoji thing. I just think that's personal preference. When does it stop? What about those who are lactose intolerant? Did you know that I have a bagel every single day? For breakfast? I do. I have clover on it. Oh, nice. And then I have Reese's, as in the chocolate brands chocolate and peanut butter spread it's divine and i have it on a sesame bagel so there's so much at play there dolly i never want you to change pandora please delve into self-care and enjoy that but just never change the chocolatey bagel. but shall i also tell you what i um sometimes do is a whole bagel can feel um a bit much very early so what i do is i have half my bagel with my peanut butter and chocolate spread mix and then at lunch i have the other half and i um Put some Gruyere on it, pop it in the microwave for 20 seconds, take out and then put pickle on it. So that's another... But presumably the, you, you haven't put the chocolate on that one. No, I keep it in the toaster and right. then I just give it a quick blitz to warm it. Just to, you know, frisson. Yeah. And then the Gruyere and then the pickle. So I have half my bagel for breakfast and half my bagel for lunch. Thrifty. No but, cream cheese there. But then do you, have, do you accompany it with a salad or something? No, the vegetables come later in the day. Because I'm worried that's not going to sustain you, I must say. Well, um, yeah, you're right. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> my favourite thing I learnt this week was by my husband. And that is, I think he obviously saw a meme, that when you sneeze and fart at the same time, it's the human body taking a screenshot. <laughs> that's such an Ollie joke. <laughs> 
music. It's so good. It's very disorientating. And sometimes God, I see Zadie do it and I think, you poor love, I know that was overwhelming. <laughs> it is literally even kind of the sound. Yeah, exactly. It's good that, isn't it? Charlie's agreeing furiously. So from human screenshots to ye old mailbag. <laughs> what was in there, Dolly? We've had some great emails from our listeners about our discussion of... Uh, Generation Z and how they were drinking less. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and experiences. This one was from Alessandra. I've had a few conversations with friends this week about how we are considered generation sensible. We're all 2021. 20, I'm a student at Warwick Uni and there does feel like such a pressure to be going so far above and beyond in extracurricular things, especially as an arts slash humanities student. And drinking just makes getting everything done so much harder. There seems to be such a sense of, well, if I'm paying nine grand a year for this degree, I actually want to be able to make it to my morning lectures and not feel shit. A lot of societies are now going to extra lengths to provide non-drinking social events. And a friend on my course who doesn't drink for religious reasons now goes to so many more socials because she feels much more included, which is great. Also, thanks to Pandora for the French chill recommendation. I've had it on this afternoon while writing coursework and it's such a vibe. People are loving the French chill they loved the french chill uh that's a really interesting point that i hadn't thought about and that didn't come up in our interviews with scarlett and charlie is um that totally makes sense is that tuition fees are Have so yeah. fucking expensive now yeah. that it's actually a bit gross isn't it because i think that both of us would probably have had a slightly different university experience if our tuition had fees pressure yeah, yeah. It, rather than just like rolling up Mm. hung over all the time I mean we still such an investment we still had to pay obviously but it but it was it was a fraction of yeah I think it was was a third wasn't it yeah we also got an email from Lois Paisy about a news story I find genuinely fascinating and I'd love to follow up with a piece on it actually doctors in the Shetland Islands can now prescribe nature it is believed to be the first program of its kind in the UK Lois said, this is one for Dolly's obsession with the Highlands. (laughs) And she's right. Long time listeners might remember I visited Orkney and uh, totally fell in love. And the Shetlands are islands just north of Orkney. The article states that the programme includes a leaflet for patients that reads, in February, you can make a wind sock from a hoop and material to appreciate the speed of the wind. In March, you can make beach art from natural materials or borrow a dog and take it for a walk. In April, you can touch the sea and make a bug hotel i used to love doing that in may you can bury your face in the grass in july you can pick two different kinds of grass and really look at them pandora stop laughing in august you can summon a worm out of the ground without digging or using water in september you can pandora is literally having a meltdown in september you can help clean the beach and prepare a meal outdoors in october you can appreciate a cloud (laughs) pandora pull it together You can talk to a pony in November, feed the birds in your garden in December and do so much more. That's what I should have done last week. But Dolly, the thing that I love about this is you don't need to wait till May to bury your face in the grass. And I think you could choose to summon a worm out of the ground in in any month of the year. And also, if you want to appreciate a cloud, girlfriend, you go appreciate a cloud. No, you have to wait for the designated. It's actually October, so just get out there. Oh my God, that was fantastic. But I love that because it is, I am a massive believer, obviously. Of talking to ponies. Of talking to ponies and staring at clouds and summoning worms. 
for mental health. Truly, really, I think the power of nature is so healing, and I think I think it's great that that's now being. I think the I think for me the most um, potent one there is uh, a wind sock to appreciate this. Beautiful all wind. right, all right. It sounds quite sexual. A wind. Sock. Let's hear the final email. <laughs> I knew you weren't going to take that one seriously. Let's hear the final email. Oh, thanks for that. Love that. <laughs> Speaking of nature, we got a very touching email involving a sweet pair of sea turtles. This is from Daisy. My first solo holiday, I was filled with trepidation and fear of essentially the unknown. In a hostel, I overheard a girl, Rose, recommending everything I know about love to another girl, and I immediately saw my opportunity and seized it, agreeing with Rose that this other girl should immediately read Dolly's book. Next thing I knew, Rosie and I were discussing our favourite Hilo episodes and also recommending it to everyone in the hostel. Without having listened to the Hilo, I'm not sure the trip would have been quite the same. So when we went to the turtle conservation, we had the amazing opportunity to release sea turtles. Rose and I decided that without the Hilo, we would not have met. So in your honour, we named our two sea turtles... Dolly and Pandora. God, we've got so many animals named after us now. We've got a menagerie, a DP menagerie. We got to take them to the sea and watch as they embarked on the new chapter of their lives. I've actually watched sea turtles hatch in Jamaica and I helped them race to the sea. Did you know that, Dolly? Yeah, I remember because it was... um, So I spent my 30th birthday. Yeah, I remember being so jealous and it was also the first time that the highlight went to number two in the charts because I remember you messaged me being like, sea turtles and number two couldn't be happier. (laughs) So thank you for that, and thank you for the picture of the very sweet little sea turtles, which of course we will tweet. What have you been enjoying this week, Panda? Read lots of books, uh, as usual. In fact, I did a big Instagram post last week on all the books I've been enjoying since the last time I did a books post from the summer. And I think I'll probably keep trying to do one of those every six weeks. Um, In the last week, I've read some great books. The Keeper, which is the second novel by Graham Norton. Oh, apparently The very same Graham Norton. It's lovely, gentle Irish tale. My mum's going to love it. It's um, had really good reviews. It's really, really lovely. It's quite sad. It's very moving. I also read Late in the Day by Tessa Hadley. Seven Days of Us by Sunday Time Style alumni Francesca Hornack. And Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album, which appears to be a super cult book by the um, Instagram responses, including one that said that they thought I was better than that. Far too soppy for me. And I wanted to reply, but can we bother being like, I'm definitely not better than that. But also, how I'm sne- really soppy. How snooty. <laughs> really snooty. But you in particular, Dolly, will love Late in the Day by Tessa Hadley and Seven Days of Us by Francesca Hornack. They are both the quintessential Meg Wallitzer domestic novel in the most elevated sense. They're both excellently insightful on family dynamics and, in Tessa Hadley's case, the intricacies and hypocrisies of close friendship. Some journalism I've loved since the last show. Lots of journalists wrote about camp following the announcement that the Met Gala's 2019 theme was to be camp. My favourite was Charlie Porter for the Financial Times, who broke down what is and isn't camp. Do they mean camp in in that sense? In the kind of political, social, historical... I can't wait to see it bastardised by... The celebrities. Because that feels... Do you remember they did Catholicism this year? Yeah, well, I was about about to say that feels near to the knuckle, but I suppose when you think about Catholicism, yeah. So they take, I suppose, social, historical or artistic movements normally related to an exhibition that the Met's curator has done. So I'm sure there's an exhibition attached to this. Yeah, my favourite was Charlie Porter, um, writing for the Financial Times about what is and isn't camp. Twitter is definitely not camp because it is inherently desperate. 
Instagram is not camp, but it can be a vehicle for camp. But dog posts are always camp because humans have fetishized dogs to become manifestations of their repressed camp instincts. Middle age users of Instagram are often camp without realizing it, especially when they try to take selfies. Indeed, being middle aged is in itself quite camp because middle age is a failed attempt at seriousness. Sally Hughes wrote a piece for The Pool in light of Meghan Markle's rumoured decision to cut out her family, uh, a piece which I'm still thinking about, about her own decision to deliberately estrange herself from family members. People, even the nicer ones, are so horrified by an adult child's decision to sever ties with their parents or take an extended break that they immediately tell you what they think you don't already very painfully know. It's so sad. Yes, it is. Is anything that bad that can't be fixed? Yes, it would appear there is. You'll be heartbroken when he's dead. Of course. Oh, I love my parents. Me too. But not at my own life's expense. I've heard them all. She then goes on to say, Family estrangement is, in my fairly considerable personal experience, very rarely a grudge. It's Mm. not about punishing someone or teaching them a lesson or refusing to back down. And it's certainly not about needing to win. Far from it. It is a loss so huge to everyone concerned that it feels much like a death. It's neither flippant nor entered into lightly. More often than not, estrangement is a last resort, a painful and measured decision to remove yourself from your daily life behaviours and people that consistently make you feel unhappy, chaotic and upset. What an amazing piece. Because actually I think that's something perhaps... It's a rarely heard point of view Yeah, and perhaps that's something we all, I'm thinking about myself, have been insensitive to in the past. We both come from very... Happy, lucky families. Um, And I just don't think that if you come from that, that you think about that, that you understand that. I loved her debunking the cliched responses to the news that she has estranged Mm. herself from the past. And and that it's it's a collective grief for everyone. Yeah. How how unbelievably tragic and sad for everyone. And it's not about mourning or or wanting them dead or being Mm. happy being happy when they are yeah thought that was a really interesting important moving read yeah also a very moving um and important read this week new york magazine's cover story for this week and next week the magazine comes out every two weeks is a brilliant and stunning series of interviews with 27 survivors of high school shootings in america over the last half century. There have been over 70 high school shootings this year alone. Just this week, a student was shot dead at a school in North Carolina by a classmate, and there was not a high school shooting, but there was a shooting in a Pittsburgh synagogue where 11 people were killed. The piece has been rightly lauded. It's fascinating and so beautifully shot by Michael Avedon. The cover features a truly stunning black and white picture of a survivor from the Parkland, Florida shooting in February of this year. Anthony Borge, who was shot five times and now wears a colostomy bag and he's been credited with saving the lives of over 20 people. Avedon travelled the country from Parkland to Columbine taking photos of half a century of school shooting victims. The piece is written by Jared Sewell and Amelia Schonbeck and the introduction offers such pause for thought. One of the first recorded American school shootings took place in 1840, they write, which is an interesting fact, but the first high school shooting that truly lodged itself in our consciousness was Columbine in 1999 when two students wearing trench coats fatally shot 13 of their classmates. It took 45 minutes for a SWAT team to go in. As the AP would note, those officers had never trained for what they found. No hostages, no demands, just killing. Link in the show notes, as usual, read, read, Mm. read. 
And my last recommendation uh, for this week's episode is an episode of The Food Chain, which is a BBC World Service podcast presented by Emily Thomas. And the episode that I listened to that I found really interesting was on why eating disorders are not a rich white woman's problem. The podcast discusses how eating disorders are dismissed and looked down upon in the black community, particularly in Africa. It's seen as a rejection of the archetypal black body type, striving to be Western and skinny and not seen as a mental disorder, that's seen as something superficial and vacuous. I found it incredibly interesting and I'm going to insert a clip here. One study found doctors are less likely to diagnose a fictional case study character with an eating disorder if she's black, rather than Caucasian or Hispanic. That's worrying because there's some evidence that in the US, bulimia may actually occur at higher rates in black than white populations. The National Eating Disorders Association says that black women may be more vulnerable to eating disorders because of environmental stress such as abuse, racism and poverty. You know, I always always heard things like, well, you know, black women don't have eating disorders. Black women are incredibly comfortable with with being large. I just felt like I was failing all the way around, failing at at being the archetype strong black woman. What about you, Doll? What have you been enjoying? I've listened to some great podcast episodes. I listened to Busy Phillips, who was on Mark Maron's WTF. Did you read her interview with Sophie Hayward as well? No, I haven't. You've just reminded me I'm going to read that on the way home. I really like her. I think she's so, so great. It's such an interesting conversation. I must read her book, actually, as well, which I've heard really good things Mm -hmm. about, which is on my bedside table. And she was talking about the book in the interview, and it sounds like a very bravely and truthfully approached memoir. I wish we could have got her onto the uh, highlights. She follows me on Instagram. Does she? She wrote underneath a picture, um, oh, my God, like, I love this dress or something. And I think I replied... If I didn't, I wanted to, all in capitals, oh my god, I love you. <laughs> Just like really cool. Oh my god, DM Busy Phillips, do it now, live on air. <laughs> I love her. And I think she's very interesting actually about talking. With really local radio station too. <laughs> she's very interesting talking about her transition from big, big American TV star over to kind of Instagram star. She's very honest about it. About, being, like, an in- about being an influencer. Yeah. She, she talks about that with Sophie Hayward. And she's like, like, well, I got a book deal and a, and a TV show. She's got a new chat show coming out that I think will be brilliant. She seems really, really funny. She talks about the challenges of parenthood in a very honest and <laughs> quite cutting, but very funny way. And she talks in, in quite granular detail about the anxiety that's plagued her her whole life. Uh, and, and also, you can tell in the interview that Mark Maron really likes her, which is quite rare in those interviews. You never really get that vibe when he's having those chats, unless it's like a huge star like Paul McCartney. You never get the vibe that he really wants to impress them or that he feels like they're kind of, they're on the same wavelength. But I really felt that in the interview with Busy Phillips. So that's a great chat to listen to. She's also got the best name ever. I know. I know. I just think she's gorgeous. Do you know what? Another thing she talks about as well is uh, in a way that's really devastating. And I think she talks about, she says she's written about it in her memoir as well. It's about how she, straight after she gave birth to one of her children, she was in dire straits financially and she really needed like a TV job, like an acting gig. And she got one and 
um, she was she was said to the casting producers that she was you know bigger than her normal weight because she'd just given birth, mm-hmm. but she'd worked out a way that she thinks that her losing weight throughout the show would have made sense with her character because her character was like a an actress who was emerging, and um, I think she was in a preliminary sense given the job, and then um, it was taken away from her, and it was because of her weight. She was specifically told it was because they and her agent apparently had to ring her and say it's it didn't go our way. Was the way that she said it, and it's um, because you're too big. Oh Christ! Alive. And can you imagine like the livelihood of your family resting? on the circumference of your waist. I mean, it's so unthinkable. It's so stressful to think of it. But anyway, yeah, so she talks about that in um, a way that must not be hugely comfortable to talk, you know, or enjoyable to talk about. So I take my hat off to her for being honest about that. Um, Another great WTF episode is Richard E. Grant's, which went out last week, I think. Every time I listen to a podcast episode with Richard E. Grant, I become more and more convinced that he might be one of the only (laughs) truly 100% decent celebrity actors around. Along with Bill Nye. And Bill Nye. Oh my God, speaking of which, it's a bit of a diversion, but there's a film that's coming out that India told me about. And when she described it, I was like, this is what Pandora thinks my whole personal brand is. And it's like Bill Nye um, competing in a Scrabble competition. (laughs) I was like, that's what Pandora thinks that my... Quite riveted they got that film greenlit. I know. Anyway, it looks really, really good. Sorry, that was a quick diversion. Back to Richard E. Grant. He's um, just so eccentric in such an unlaboured kind of authentic way. And he's so naturally curious. You really get that sense from him. Every time I hear him do an interview, he turns the questions round to the interviewer. Not in a manipulative way. He just is so engaged Mm -hmm. and interested in other people's stories. He did it with my friend Roisin Ingle uh, on her podcast. Roisin's an Irish columnist. And that's another fantastic conversation, actually. Her podcast is called Roisin Meets. In both those conversations, he talks about the fact he's allergic to alcohol, which I find quite funny because it's so at odds with the withnail persona that I think so many of us associate him with. Has he had, does he say, has he had a lifetime of people being like, come to the pub, here's here's a shot on me. Well, Mark Maron was like, I can't believe that you came in here looking like so clean and so well put together. I thought you'd stumble in here like a sort of Richard Burton. And Richard E. Grant was like, you know, I don't drink or smoke. It's quite funny as well because that's such a like ridiculous I, it's the idea that you are, no, it's the idea that you are your character and that character was what like 40 yeah, years ago. yeah I also think with an American guy thinking about that sort of old school English classically trained actor yeah, yeah exactly um but yeah, it's a really great chat. He talks about his extraordinary childhood. He had an alcoholic father who tried to shoot him when he was a kid, Jesus. when he tried to throw away a bottle of his booze. He talks about um, waking up in a car when he was a child to find his mother having sex with his dad's best friend on oh the my bonnet. God. Uh, he talks about growing up in Swaziland, which is one of the smallest countries in Africa and why Swaziland for him will always be the landscape that is home to mm-hmm. him. Um, and he, I just really, really... I could just He's one of those people that I could just listen to his stories and his insights on the world and, hum- and humanity forever. And I have his memoir, again, on the bedside table that I keep meaning to read, which is called With Nails. Ah, uh, I see um... what they did there. When did that come out? Is it a new one? It, no, 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 it's an old one, but it's it's meant to be a sort of definitive memoir. And when I listen to those interviews, I can, I can see why. So highly recommend that. Dr Buckles is back. 
And this week, his episode is, is with his old mate, Louis Theroux, which are always the best episodes, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, they've done quite a few now, haven't they? This one is decidedly less silly than the last ones, although I did play Pandora and Charlie a clip um, at the very end of the interview that is worth listening to, even though it's very puerile. Um, there are some funny moments, but it's it's kind of more sombre. It's more on the subject matters that are covered in Louis Theroux's upcoming TV series, which include documentaries about polyamory, babies being put up for adoption, and a new law in California regarding euthanasia, which leads on to quite a profound conversation about uh, the death of Adam's father that I found um uh, quite philosophical, actually. They, he talks about what to do with the diaries of the dead, um, which I think is a very interesting ethical grey mm-hmm. area. Um, and they also talk about the two memoirs that they're both writing. And needless to say, I will be reading both. Uh, but the serious bit is not what I'm going to put in here. The clip that I'm going to insert is Adam Buxton and Louis Theroux talking about Oprah Winfrey's morning routine. They're reading aloud Oprah Winfrey's supposed morning routine. This morning, when I hit the blackout shades just after seven, the light was casting its golden glow over the green lawn with the clouds and ocean in the distance. I watched three geese fly over the backyard and land in the pond. I don't know if that happens every morning. I was going to say, this isn't her routine. Well... Unless there's a, she's got a typical, guy who's in charge with releasing three geese This is typical Oprah. This is her talking in Bazaar magazine, I think. And I think she does have a guy who releases three geese every morning that fly over the backyard and land in the pond. Finally, I would like to recommend a book called My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshveg. It is a novel set in pre-9-11 Manhattan and is told in the first person by a nameless young woman who ostensibly has everything on paper. She's blonde, she's beautiful, she has an east side apartment, she's inherited a lot of money, but she's also lost both of her parents in traumatic circumstances and has been in an on-off relationship with, I think, the absolute worst character I've ever read in a book. I don't think I've ever had such a human gut reaction of hatred to a person who lives on a page quite like I had to this man, which is a testament to how good her writing is. The protagonist decides to retreat from the world by taking a year out of living and a sort of wacko nutjob therapist who is, on the other hand, one of the funniest characters I've ever met in the pages of a book, prescribes her an ever-changing and extreme cocktail of drugs to basically put her to sleep for a year with some brief pauses for washing and eating. It's not a light book. It's very, very darkly funny, but I found it quite a grim reading experience. But I found it increasingly profound in its overarching metaphor, which was about a kind of capitalist malaise. And while the personal story was so compelling to me and became more and more of a page turner, I think the story was also such an interesting commentary on the outside landscape of the time about the kind of end of an era, particularly in Clinton's America, which was about prosperity and decadence and a relative kind of ease of life. I absolutely adored it. And it comes highly recommended from me. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This week, I received a press release that tickled me so much and got me thinking about all the nostalgic and archival fashions I love that I immediately sent it to Dolly. According to a new survey by European fashion retailer Peter Hahn, no, me neither, the miniskirt has topped a list of the most iconic female fashion items of the last 50 years. Do you think the miniskirt deserves to be number one, doll? Personally, I do, because I would say it's my most loved and worn item since adolescence. But generally, I know it's not universally loved and it's not generically worn by all women. I'm actually often told that my skirt is too short. I nearly didn't go on stage in the dress I wore on Sunday, actually, because my hemline was so short. <laughs> I love mini skirts, but I don't know if it's the friendliest item to have been awarded yeah, number one. I know yeah. a lot of women who would never wear one, but perhaps iconic is not the same as most women feel good in it. Maybe that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's the big difference. And I think actually it's more to do with what the miniskirt represents historically. Yeah. And it is the garment that people often associate with women's sexual liberation in the 60s, which I know that period of time is often kind of truncated and glossed over and romanticised when we talk about it retrospectively. When you think that that was the decade that the pill was distributed, there's no denying that the miniskirt suddenly has a slightly iconic edge, I think. Number two on the list are the classic Levi's 501. Number three, Doc Martens. And number four is the denim jacket. I adore all of those, actually. I'm desperate to find a pair of Levi's 501s. Sticklers from previous episodes after the spending ban is finished. Um, because it's so hard to find your perfect pair I've of tried, Levi's. I've tried, and so they're redone, so good on me. Redone is really good. Um, they're very expensive, though. And do you have new pairs of them rather than vintage? No, they're all reworked. Ah. Because here's the thing with the 501 and a lot of kind of iconic jeans from like the 80s and 90s is the brilliant thing about trousers now and jeans is that the cut is so much more kind of high tech and comfy. And also flattering. Levi 501s aren't particularly flattering. Oh, really? Yeah, they don't, it's, you know, they don't necessarily make you, they make, people look like they've got a great bum but they don't they they can be quite gunty they can Mm. dig into your stomach they don't necessarily make your legs look great and that that's the thing I think about a lot of our fashion is so much more technical now if you think how much um the way that trousers are cut that's why I often don't buy vintage trousers so I think the key with the 501s is getting for a lot of the time getting jeans tailored it's why it's why a lot of high street jeans are actually like really, really flattering mm. because they are made to kind of flatter, flatter of what's considered like a modern shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm so still, they're hard to find. The I'm still determined to find. Yeah, yeah. Knows no, I love pair of them. I wear I them a lot. Them. Yeah, I love the wedgies. You told me to buy the wedgies. The five oh fives, I think, might be better than the five oh ones. Oh, what's the difference? Um. I think it's a slightly, maybe it's a slightly narrower trouser leg. Yeah, maybe Go that do your works. research. I will go do Go into Levi's. You told me to get wedgies because I've got an absolutely non-existent flat pancake, pancake square bag. bum. And yeah, the wedgies are good. The wedgies like give me a bit of a butt. But the problem is, is that the hem's so short on them. So I, I want one with, with like a longer hem. 34 inches leg. 
Yeah, I'm just like 350 million inches, yeah. But anyway, I'll go do my research. Um, I'm also so, so glad that Doc Martens made the cut. They were my favourite shoes when I was a teenager. And I always love seeing women in a pair of DMs. I think they are truly iconic. And a denim jacket, I must say, I think looks good on everyone. I actually love boys in denim jackets Mm. as well. And Nigella Lawson, when you watch the old episode of Nigella Bites, which I do on YouTube nearly every time I'm hungover, um, she's always in a little fitted indigo denim jacket, which I know is very early noughties, but I think it's just so stylish. Others on the list, skinny jeans, bell bottoms, pencil skirts and knee-high boots all made it into the top 10 iconic items list do they mean flares bell bottoms mm. feel quite it's quite extreme yeah. it's quite a hard sell the bell i think all of those actually are quite a hard sell other really? than other than my beloved knee high boot um i think skinny jeans the sort of indie band kind with the proper drain pipe ankles are so so hard to wear no matter what your shape pencil skirts are just horribly uncomfortable and i love a flared jean but bell bottoms feel a little bit Camden Market even for me, I have to say. I had a pair from Miss 60 when I was a teenager that I used to wear with big buffalo trainers. And my mum said that when I would go out stomping around in the rain on my own, which unsurprisingly was quite a lot when I was a teenager, she could see the rain being like soaked up by the hem of the bell bottom all the way up to the knee. Isn't that disgusting? How long were these jeans if on you? <laughs> they were going beyond the buffalo. I know, I know. God, it was a phenomenon, Miss Six. I don't really know what happened to it since. I had some um, flares that were like very tight and then quite bell bottomy unbelievably low rise oh with always poppers up the side from Miss 60 that you could undo all the way to the hip oh I remember those with a flamboyant rip it was very <laughs> Christina Aguilera and actually Christina Aguilera was such a pertinent bit of early noughties fashion history wasn't yeah. she the chaps yeah. oh my god the leather chaps the chaps the study of 2000 people also revealed that half of women over the age of 50 believe that they are still fashionable perish the thought how thoroughly dare they? I actually think women only get more fashionable over 50. I think the more time you spend getting dressed, this is my experience, the more time you spend getting dressed, the bolder you become with your choices and the better you know your own style and colouring and figure. I love, in all of these surveys, 50 is such a watermark mm. age. It's like depressing. At 49, you're like not that sure about your fashion choices. And then 50, it's slightly like when you talk about 30 and you do talk about it like it's... <laughs> This moving juggernaut, <laughs> this like milk cart that you have to hop on and start giving out bottles of milk to everyone else younger. I think you'll agree with this one. The majority of women in the survey thought the 60s was the best decade for fashion, followed by the 70s and then the 50s. I think that's entirely accurate, although I do have a soft spot for a 30s tea dress. Mm. And increasingly, thanks to Alessandra Rich, I'm finally starting to see the appeal of the 80s with polka dots and big velvet Alice bands and gaudy gold costume jewellery. For years, I absolutely loathed any kind of sartorially inspired 80s thing. Well, you can keep your velvet Alice bands, but I agree, I love a lot (laughs) of the 80s. But I think that might be because we're actually having high 80s renaissance right now. Cycling shorts, tweedy blazers with Levi's, button-down shirts pearls, shoulder pads, embellished yeah. velvet, sweetie wrapper, shiny shirts and yeah. dresses. I love it. Although we're actually having a bit of everything right now, according to the chaos theory, which states that every single decade now influences our current sartorial parlance. We're sort of like 
post epoch. Yeah. So we've got a bit of the sixties, a bit of the seventies, a bit of the eighties, nineties, noughties, and I think that kind of resonates. I think you can pick and choose mm. um, a bit now. The only thing that makes me well doubt the veracity of this survey um, is that stonewash jeans were number eleven. And the boob tube was at number 25. The boob tube? And the rah-rah skirt was at number 32. When I was 14, I wore a black rah-rah skirt with a... Do you remember those Toby Pimlico tops that said, I will not kiss the boys, I will not? Yeah. So I had an orange camisole. I think it must have been a copycat one from Camden, actually. An orange camisole that said, I will not kiss the boys, I will not kiss the boys. And I wore that with um, my black rah-rah skirt. And then hot pink leg... Oh, yeah, I used to wear those. Leg warmers. Yeah. Teamed with a low slingback rainbow um, striped mule from office. And I remember... (laughs) And I remember I snogged a boy. And after we snogged, he said... And can you imagine... I mean, I was 15, so it wasn't an issue. But can you imagine more of a boner killer than this line? It was... We snogged and it was time for pick-up. And he said... Mummy doesn't like your leg warmers. Oh my god. <laughs> so that's my story about the raw roster. <laughs> I had um, one of those t shirts. Who designed them? Toby, Toby Pimlico. I had, I had one of them, and I can't believe I'm going to tell you this because you will never let me live CJ it down. is loving this trip down memory lane, by the way. I, the the slogan that was on mine, bearing in mind that I was North London's longest reigning virgin. I thought you meant to say longest, as in you were like physically. <laughs> and that as well. Longest, just their longest virgin. Just like lumbering virgin. The t shirt said, <laughs> model turned actress. even I believed it part of me absolutely but what I loved about these t-shirts is all the girls actually quite inappropriate when you think about them all the teenage girls wearing them it's like I will not kiss the boys like I didn't really have boys queuing up to kiss me it wasn't like I was like walking into a room and being like darling I can't yeah and we were all wearing these like really saucy t-shirts which implied that we had like the opportunity that we didn't yeah but also that sort of fake coy flirtation is just so inappropriate for a child faux knowingness yeah yeah it's a bit Geordie Shaw but also in North London I sometimes see like a 45 year old man walking down the street and my favourite one I saw recently was um, a middle aged man wearing a t-shirt that said influencer oh my god that's so funny my brother bought one when he was like 11 from Camden Market that said no common theme Camden Camden Market you can still get those t-shirts you still get punky fish though I don't know if punky fish is still going actually a little fishy zipper with all the, the UFO trousers, with all the flappy bits coming off. You know, my brother's one that he bought, and my mum used to despair when he would wear it to, like, church or whatever, was Nobody Knows I'm a Lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually like to know, who else? If anyone still has their Camden slogan T-shirt... Send us a picture. Please send us a picture. The cricket jumper was at number 48, whilst the bandage dress was at number 50. It's quite random, this list. Somewhere in there was the Chanel suit spelt channel. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think anything was missing? Um, I think maybe the white trouser suit. Oh, that's a bold call. Which... Sadly, I've never dared to do it, although I have contemplated it in my time. I've I've always wanted to channel that kind of Bianca Jagger vibe, but I'm worried I'll miss the mark and end up as Liberty X. <laughs> It's not a particularly fashion-forward 
survey, I grant you. May I direct you to the boob tube of the rah skirt? Although that's no bad thing in my book. However, I do think the hoodie should have made it on and possibly leggings. Not because I love them, um, though unusually I am actually wearing them today with socks and sandals for ultimate North London middle-class mum points. But because I think high-performance leggings have changed have changed women's lives in a social and and health sense. I genuinely think that they empower more women to go to the gym now, as the gear is so much better. Yeah. I also don't think poor old Pandora has seen me at a high-low record not wearing trainers and leggings for the best part of a year. got a lot of very jaunty leggings. I have such a great selection of... Are you wearing the squiggles today? No, I'm wearing the sweaty Betty um, Japanese art leggings. You've seen a lot of my camel toes this art. year. Yeah, I actually have got a really good one right now. <laughs> and it's bisected up the middle with a hem. Char- with a hem. Char- what is it? Like Charlie. a seam. A seam. It cleaves right. <laughs> look at what Charlie's doing. He's actually staring at the ceiling. Well, sorry, he doesn't have to look at your fucking vagina. You, that's all you can see in this room. Anyway, oh, you can see. Back to the mini skirt, Pandora. I'd like a final fact, please. <laughs> I thought we'd end on some fashion trivia. On the 30th of October 1965, this very same day that we are recording, 53 years previous, model Jean Shrimpton caused a sensation by wearing a mini skirt dress to the, or a mini dress, to the Melbourne Cup in Australia. She looks fabulous. She looks gorgeous, but I mean, I would almost class that as a midi. It's not even short. No. It's just above knee length. But for the time, it was positively pussy skimming. of episodes ago we talked about philip green demanding that a pop-up stall for feminists don't wear pink an essay collection curated by scarlett curtis be dismantled in the flagship branch of top shop in oxford circus this week we're talking about him again for very different reasons he has found himself at the center of an alleged scandal that once again has brought into question the ethical implications of injunctions and ndas The Daily Telegraph reported last week that Philip Green, the chairman of the Arcadia Group, a retail company that includes Topshop, Topman, Wallace, Evans, Burton, Miss Selfridge and Dorothy Perkins, had been granted an injunction preventing the Telegraph from naming him. The paper said interviews with five members of staff revealed that victims had been paid substantial sums in return for legal commitments not to discuss their alleged experiences. Here's where it gets a bit complicated. Although the press was gagged from naming him, MPs and peers have parliamentary privilege, which is a legal immunity over statements made in the House of Commons or Lords. So does that mean they can say stuff even if it's behind an injunction? They have the immunity to say it? Yes, exactly. So Labour peer Lord Hayne identified the Topshop boss in the House of Lords on Thursday saying he felt it was his duty to do so because it was in the public interest. The Telegraph and the media at large then claimed they were entitled to report Lord Hayne's statement in Parliament. Philip Green has claimed that Philip Hayne was not transparent about his financial links to the law firm that represented the Daily Telegraph during the injunction. At the moment, it feels like the conversation is just so much about what can and cannot be said legally rather than the specifics of the allegations themselves, but I'm sure that that is to come i think that's what makes the case really interesting though is it it is making us kind of look into the the legalese around how things are made 
public and not. Um, there's also a lot of Phillips in this um, mm. story, that's an observation. <laughs> Since then, on Friday the 26th of October, The Guardian alleged, thanks to an anonymous Arcadia insider coming forward, that there were seven suspected settlements, with some of them being seven figures. The source alleged that Green's behaviour included walking into meetings and giving women lingering hugs, asking them if they were naughty girls and needed their bottoms slapped, creeping up behind them in the corridors to make them jump before comforting them with a hug, telling women they were overweight and needed to diet and flying into expletive-laden rages. Philip Green spoke to the Mail on Sunday this past weekend and dismissed any allegations as some banter, which has never been offensive. Speaking from a spa in Arizona... (laughs) which is a detail I very much relished. He said, I'm very, very, very upset. I'm being used as target practice when there is zero evidence that anyone has turned up with. It's injuring my business, all the people potentially working in the business, and it's injuring me and my family. He went on to say, this whole thing is disgusting. This has got nothing to do with any sexual misconduct. It's nonsense. This cannot be right. Knocking on people's doors, harassing people, trying to make them say something that's not true. In regards to the claims of racism aboard his super yacht, he explained, my family's longest serving Filipino employee who brings many others to work for us has been with us for 28 years. The family still employs many Filipinos and anyone who's telling you there is an issue with Filipinos is just making trouble. That's such a um, irrelevant statement because just because you employ someone doesn't mean that you aren't racist or racially abuse them. Like having having someone serving you doesn't mean that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if yeah, anything, no, it's... if anything, it quite often probably was the other way around because it's about keeping a certain status. And I'm not I'm not knocking. Do you know what I mean? I think it's possible to employ someone Filipino and that doesn't mean that you see no, yourself... No, of course, I, I do think but it's that's an irrelevant not a, statement. It's a completely yeah. irrelevant statement. You might have employed them for 28 years. It doesn't mean you haven't been a dickhead in that yeah. time. Rachel Clark, an author and doctor, made me laugh with this tweet, which is trending today. Which of us hasn't indulged in some harmless banter at work, then made seven-figure payouts to silence our colleagues? Well, quite. And actually, Charlie has regularly pulled stunts like that. And we've had to settle, you know, six, seven-figure sums outside of this very room. I just love that tweet from Rachel Clark. Like, it was almost like sort of normalcy in business. But that's the thing. I think he thinks it's normal in business. I yeah. think it probably is normal in business. And it's not, Charlie. We've se- re- times have changed. I You've know. really got to change with them. No, we're joking. CJ is <laughs> CJ is a model colleague. It's Dolly. I'm actually, you know, if I had to trade one of them, it's, it's her. <laughs> uh, Philip Green warned reporters that things would get horribly, horribly ugly for The Telegraph if it didn't halt its ongoing investigation. He said to a reporter, I'm going to proposition you, actually. I'm going to turn gay in a minute. That's how it happens, isn't it? You just turn gay in a single minute in order to assault a reporter trying to do his job and report on your gross behaviour. Also, I love the idea that threatening to turn gay and proposition someone is, in fact, a smart way to prove to the national press that you are a responsible, appropriate, ethical and fair employer. Talk about digging yourself into yeah. a, a even larger hole. Um, he best be careful. I've heard that is how it how it happens. I was quite resistant to talk about this topic at first. I, we both, if I'm honest, really wanted a week of the high-low where we don't have to talk about alleged sexual abuse or harassment, where we can talk for the whole episode about miniskirts. I mean, what a dream of a witter that would be. But so many people wanted us to talk about it and... We do feel compelled when something like this happens, as we have in the past, that we kind of have to talk about it because mm. that's, the, that's the power that we all have right now is to be having these 
discussions and actually we thought it said a lot about where we are right now as well with NDAs and injunctions. They've become such a part of modern life. So many celebrities have them. Who gets them? Why do they get upheld? And what's the difference between an injunction and an NDA? That's what we were interested in. So Pandora referred to the library of Google. I did, although I'd like to add, I did do quite a lot of comparing and contrasting of terms uh, to try and put it into the simplest of definitions. So thank you very much. So here's the difference as I see it. An injunction is an umbrella term for a court order that compels a party to do or refrain from specific acts. It might take the form of a non-molestation act. So if you are a victim of domestic abuse, but no charges of a criminal offence have been made, i.e. you don't have a restraining order, then you can apply for an injunction. Or, as we so often hear about them now, injunctions take the form of silencing one party when settling financially or otherwise, uh, where giving monetary damages is not seen as sufficient. So if someone talks, you know, the damage can still be made. Mm. An NDA, on the other hand, is an agreement between two parties rather than something served or enforced by one party to the other. Although we saw in the Harvey Weinstein case with um, Al Novri that NDAs can be forced upon a party through intimidation or if they don't have adequate legal strength. So it becomes, I think, slightly muddy from what I've read. Theresa May um, has not commented explicitly about this case, but on the subject of NDAs, she said that some companies use the agreements unethically. And she said that non-disclosure agreements or NDAs should not silence whistleblowers and also that the government would take action to make sure employees knew their rights. Um, I don't think she's really saying anything that... uh anyone else hasn't been mm. saying um, not not uh, groundbreaking mm. <laughs> that they're 100% used unethically and I think they probably have been for a long time we don't necessarily hear much about business injunctions but we hear a lot about celebrity injunctions as journalists we certainly do obviously mm. we can't relay any of them here nine times out of ten they really fuck me off because they protect some rich celebrity at someone else's expense often the person who is telling the truth um all in the name of so-called public interest. I've had so many debates at dinner recently about what constitutes public interest. What have the debates entailed? Well, funnily enough, they've been about both Philip Green and another very famous individual who I have long had very vigorous and increasingly wine-fueled debates about. So my point of view is, and I'm using the example of cheating here, because very often that's how injunctions are granted to celebrities. Um, and we know that because when the injunction fails... The Sun or some tabloid will print how they tried to seek an injunction and failed. Um, I don't much care if a celebrity cheats on their wife or husband. I mean, I wish they didn't, but yeah, no, I, I really don't. Care. I, you know, I don't. I, I don't think it's hugely our business. No, but if you are making a lot of money off a public persona that upholds you as a family man with certain values, then that is problematic to me because you're selling a lie and that's morally bankrupt and it's also presenting a false idealism of marriage and how easy it is to stay in a lasting monogamous relationship um, so you're saying that that pushes an, a, a lie a sort of insidious lie. i think it's an ethical wrong and that's why i think it's in the public interest i don't think you get to be a celebrity um act like the cat who got the cream or to continue my metaphor the pussy and then go no don't tell anyone i don't want to break up my family or more importantly lose my many many global family friendly endorsements well you should have thought of that before mate that's why i think it's in the public interest i think this will sound like a very obvious point but i think re 
really breaking it down, fundamentally the problem with financial settlements and NDAs in terms of public interest is that public interest cannot just be decided and edited by those in power with enormous amounts of money who can erase history to manage their reputation. No, I think it should, I think public interest should be seen literally in kind of like societal ethics. Mm. Just does it further the benefit and the understanding and the mutual... But the question is who who decides that? The judge. But they've been making the wrong decisions. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's such a... It's so difficult to, yeah, to it's, draw it's, that boundary. It's not, it's not objective, is yeah. it? Yeah. And the problem, I think, not so much with injunctions, but from, from sort of settlements, out-of-court settlements, is that beyond ethics, I think it's just unfair. I think if erasing transgressions was available to everyone, then maybe I would be more on board with it. But it can't just be available to men in power because it's a system that allows men to routinely abuse that power. I mean, and to be fair, I don't think it's just men. I think there's probably plenty of rich women who no, as no. well have been... I know, of in course, this example. But, but, but I have to say, generically speaking, who has the most power and money and therefore yeah. the most... Uh, the resources most the to be able to yeah. censor history you know white men what i find so interesting about this case is not lord hayne who enforced his um immunity but the gathering mo- momentum not least by scarlett curtis that created an environment where for the first time people were publicly criticizing philip green for reasons other than business mm. he, he's been criticised in a business sense for ages because of the disgusting way that he acted over BHS pensions and also all the tax loopholes he um, exploits by living in Monaco as you mentioned recently Dolly the Sunday Times correspondent Oliver Shah wrote a great eviscerating book about him that someone actually recommended to me again at dinner on Friday night but no one had really questioned him morally speaking in places other than broadsheet op-eds or kind of like specific books and certainly nothing had ever been revealed that I'd read about his sexual conduct which is something that all megalomaniacs now face having been put under this this microscope perhaps that's the most successful part of me too is that we have seen sadly it's it's not going to erase everyday sexism yet and Mm -hmm. and certainly there's been a lot of infighting between the campaigners of me too um it's not going to stop the brett kavanaugh's of this world but it can and will reveal in ways that hadn't previously been done so the morally and or sexually redundant and repugnant and philip green has now segued into a business from a business person into a person of pop culture interest. There have been calls for Beyonce to remove her clothing line from Topshop. And Sophie Wilkinson wrote a great piece for Grazia about why women associated with Philip Green shouldn't be held accountable for his actions. She writes, The questioning of women for a man's alleged actions feels like a rotten power play that deserves its own analysis. True, Kate Moss has previously been a business partner of Green's and her last Topshop collection was in 2014. Beyonce's Ivy Park range was initially launched through Topshop also in 2014. Perhaps if we're in the game of asking celebrities about their experiences with Green, it might be worth hitting up Nick Grimshaw, who also did a range with Topman in 2015. Should powerful men be able to shut women up? Should powerful publications be able to suggest women, to the exclusion of men, are accountable for men's actions simply by virtue of having hung out with them or even worked with Mm. them? The answer to both is a resounding simple no. Depicting women as either stupid or Machiavellian in taking sides of an allegedly disgraced man when the full story isn't out only seems to prop up the status quo that has seen nasty men long wield their power with impunity. 
always on the money is Soph. I actually think as well we'll see quite a different public reaction um, to how we have... I know it's not the same case before people say I'm conflating, but in media terms it has been compared to what happened with Harvey Weinstein yeah. and Me Too in America. Yeah. And rather crassly, um, it has been called the... British, me too. I think we'll see people react very differently to how Donna Karan, who mm. is still, I think, seen in a really kind of critical light for, in the early days, standing by mm. Harvey Weinstein. I mm. think anyone who, pub- any women who publicly stood with him were really, really torn down. And that's very different, by the way, to having worked with them yes, in yes, the past. Yeah. Um, on that note, will you be boycotting Topshop? I don't know if truly, honestly, I will totally stop shopping there. I I feel conflicted and embarrassed to admit that. And I'm sure I'll be criticised for it. And I do get that in shopping there, I am, you know, effectively lining pea green's pockets. But I want to be truthful and realistic. It's one of my favourite shops on the high street. It's one of the best stores on the high street. And whilst I definitely don't feel compelled to wander in there right now, I can't pretend that whatever happens, I won't ever shop there again. I I can actually see a world, though, where people lie about where something is from or whisper, Mm. having done a furtive dash, top shop, when they're asked where, you know, say their leopard print coat hails from. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't think the question of whether to boycott Topshop is really the most pressing Neither right I, now. But don't you foresee that happening? I've already seen women on Twitter encourage other women to stop shopping there, and and I don't I don't actually think that's hysterical. I do understand it, but realistically, I I don't. Do you do you think you would ever shop there again? Probably, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah, I don't no, know. I think but, it's but, important to be honest because yeah. I think sometimes. We say what we think we have to say mm. to avoid criticism from others. And we're, you are talking about, he does own half the high street. I think we're in such early days of, of understanding how this is going to pan out. I, I think there, there are more pressing general national questions. Will Hutton wrote an opinion piece to The Guardian on how Philip Green and the way he runs his empire needs to be seen as an example of how business needs to change. Mm-hmm. He writes... British capitalism needs a root and branch makeover. We need more firms committed to creating value over time, animated by a purpose. Firms that want to be great places to work, to serve their customers, to possess shareholders who take on that vision and to recognise their responsibility to the society of which they are part. A national conversation about how to do this has not even begun. Until then, there will be more Philip Greens. very much to everyone who listened to the Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps boost us in the charts and helps other people to find us. I know you love my boost. More boosty. <laughs> boost. You can email us thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehiloshow. Boost. <laughs>